Section two of Out of Mulberry Street by Jacob A. Rees. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Section two, Twas Liza's Doings and The De Burke's Father and Son. Section two, Twas Liza's Doings. Joe drove his old grey mare along the stony road in deep thought. They had been across the ferry to Newtown with a load of Christmas truck. It had been a hard pull uphill for them both, for Joe had found it necessary not a few times to get down and give old Liza a lift to help her over the roughest spots. And now, going home, with the twilight coming on and no other job awaiting, he let her have her own way. It was slow but steady, and it suited Joe, for his head was full of busy thoughts, and there were few enough of them that were pleasant. Business had been bad at the big stores, never worse, and what trucking there was there were too many about. Storekeepers who never used to look at a dollar, so long as they knew they could trust the man who did their hauling, were counting the nickels these days. As for chance jobs like this one, that was all over now with the holidays, and there had been little enough of it, too. There would be less, a good deal, with the hard winter at the door, and with Liza to keep and the many mouths to fill. Still he wouldn't have minded it so much but for mother fretting and worrying herself sick at home, and all along a Jim, the eldest boy, who had gone away mad and never came back. Many were the dollars he had paid the doctor and the druggist to fix her up, but it was no use. She was worrying herself into a decline, it was clear to be seen. Joe heaved a heavy sigh as he thought of the strapping lad who had brought such sorrow to his mother. So strong and so handy on the wagon. Old Liza loved him like a brother, and minded him even better than she did himself. If he only had him now, they could face the winter and the bad times, and pull through. But things never had gone right since he left. He didn't know, Joe thought humbly as he jogged along over the rough road, but he had been a little hard on the lad. Boys wanted a chance once in a while. All work and no play was not for them. Likely he had forgotten he was a boy once himself. But Jim was such a big lad, most like a man. He took after his mother more than the rest. She had been proud, too, when she was a girl. He wished he hadn't been hasty that time they had words about those boxes at the store. Anyway, it turned out that it wasn't Jim's fault. But he was gone that night, and, try as they might to find him, they never had word of him since. And Joe sighed again more heavily than before. Old Liza shied at something in the road, and Joe took a firmer hold on the reins. It turned his thoughts to the horse. She was getting old, too, and not as handy as she was. He noticed that she was getting winded with a heavy load. It was well on to ten years she had been their capital and the breadwinner of the house. Sometimes he thought that she missed Jim. If she was to leave them now, he wouldn't know what to do, for he couldn't raise the money to buy another horse nohow, as things were. Poor old Liza! He stroked her grey coat musingly, with the point of his whip as he thought of their old friendship. The horse pointed one ear back toward her master, and neighed gently, as if to assure him that she was all right. Suddenly she stumbled. Joe pulled her up in time, and throwing the reins over her back, got down to see what it was. An old horseshoe, and in the dust beside it a new silver quarter. 
He picked both up and put the shoe in the wagon. "'They say it is luck,' he mused, finding horse iron and money. "'Maybe it's my Christmas. Get up, Liza!' And he drove off to the ferry. The glare of a thousand gas-lamps had chased the sunset out of the western sky, when Joe drove home through the city's streets. Between their straight, mile-long rows surged the busy life of the coming holiday. In front of every grocery store was a grove of fragrant Christmas trees waiting to be fitted into little green stands with fairy fences. Within, customers were bargaining, chatting, and bantering the busy clerks. Peddlers offering tinsel and coloured candles waylaid them on the doorstep. The rack under the butcher's awning fairly groaned with its weight of plucked geese, of turkeys, stout and skinny, of poultry of every kind. The saloon-keeper even had wreathed his door-posts in ground ivy and hemlock, and hung a sprig of holly in the window, as if with a spurious promise of peace on earth and goodwill toward men who entered there. It tempted not Joe. He drove past it to the corner, where he turned up a street darker and lonelier than the rest, toward a stretch of rocky, vacant lots fenced in by an old stone wall. Liza turned in at the rude gate, without being told, and pulled up at the house. A plain little one-story frame with a lean-to for a kitchen, and an adjoining stable-shed, overshadowed all by two great chestnuts of the days when there were country lanes where now are paved streets, and on Manhattan Island there was farm by farm. A light gleamed in the window looking toward the street. As Liza's hoofs were heard on the drive, a young girl with a shawl over her head ran out from some shelter where she had been watching, and took the reins from Joe. "'You're late,' she said, stroking the mare's steaming flank. Liza reached around and rubbed her head against the girl's shoulder, nibbling playfully at the fringe of her shawl. "'Yes, we've come far, and it's been a hard pull. Liza is tired. Give her a good feed, and I'll bet her down. How's mother?' "'Spryer than she was,' replied the girl, bending over the shaft to unbuckle the horse. "'Seems as if she's kind of cheered up for Christmas.' And she led Liza to the stable, while her father backed the wagon into the shed. It was warm and very comfortable in the little kitchen, where he joined the family after washing up. The fire burned brightly in the range, on which a good-sized roast sizzled cheerily in its pot, sending up clouds of savoury steam. The sand on the white pine floor was swept in tongues, old country fashion. Joe and his wife were both born across the sea, and liked to keep Christmas Eve as they had kept it when they were children. Two little boys, and a younger girl than the one who had met him at the gate, received him with shouts of glee, and pulled him straight from the door to look at a hemlock branch stuck in the tub of sand in the corner. It was their Christmas tree, and they were to light it with candles, red and yellow and green, which Mama got them at the grocer's where the big Santa Claus stood on the shelf. They pranced about like so many little colts, and clung to Joe by turns, shouting all at once, each one anxious to tell the great news first and loudest. Joe took them on his knee, all three, and when they had shouted until they had to stop for breath, he pulled from under his coat a paper bundle, at which the children's eyes bulged. He undid the wrapping slowly. "'Who do you think has come home with me?' he said, 
and he held up before them the veritable Santa Claus himself, done in plaster and all snow-covered. He had bought it at the corner toy store with his lucky quarter. I met him on the road over on Long Island, where Liza and I was to-day, and I gave him a ride to town. They say it's luck falling in with Santa Claus, particular when there's a horseshoe along. I put his'n up in the barn, in Liza's stall. Maybe our luck will turn yet, eh, old woman? And he put his arm around his wife, who was setting out the dinner with Jenny, and gave her a good hug, while the children danced off with their Santa Claus. She was a comely little woman, and she tried hard to be cheerful. She gave him a brave look and a smile, but there were tears in her eyes, and Joe saw them, though he let on that he didn't. He patted her tenderly on the back, and smoothed his Jenny's yellow braids, while he swallowed the lump in his throat, and got it down and out of the way. He needed no doctor to tell him that Santa Claus would not come again, and find her cooking their Christmas dinner, unless she mended soon and swiftly. They ate their dinner together, and sat and talked until it was time to go to bed. Joe went out to make all snug about Liza for the night, and to give her an extra feed. He stopped in the door, coming back, to shake the snow out of his clothes. It was coming on with bad weather and a northerly storm, he reported. The snow was falling thick already, and drifting badly. He saw to the kitchen fire and put the children to bed. Long before, the clock in the neighbouring church tower struck twelve, and its doors were opened for the throngs come to worship at the midnight mass. The lights in the cottage were out, and all within it fast asleep. The murmur of the homeward hurrying crowds had died out, and the last echoing shout of, Merry Christmas, had been whirled away on the storm, now grown fierce with bitter cold, when a lonely wanderer came down the street. It was a boy, big and strong-limbed, and, judging from the manner in which he pushed his way through the gathering drifts, not unused to battle with the world, but evidently in hard luck. His jacket, white with the falling snow, was scant and worn nearly to rags, and there was that in his face which spoke of hunger and suffering silently endured. He stopped at the gate in the stone fence, and looked long and steadily at the cottage in the chestnuts. No life stirred within, and he walked through the gap with slow and hesitating step. Under the kitchen window he stood a while, sheltered from the storm, as if undecided, then stepped to the horse-shed and rapped gently on the door. "'Liza!' he called. "'Liza, old girl! It's me, Jim!' A low, delighted whinnying from the stall told the shivering boy that he was not forgotten there. The faithful beast was straining at her halter in a vain effort to get at her friend. Jim raised a bar that held the door closed by the aid of a lever within, of which he knew the trick, and went in. The horse made room for him in her stall, and laid her shaggy head against his cheek. "'Poor old Liza,' he said, patting her neck and smoothing her grey coat. "'Poor old girl. Jim has one friend that hasn't gone back on him.' I've come to keep Christmas with you, Liza. Had your supper, eh? You're in luck. I haven't. I wasn't bid, Liza, but never mind. You shall feed for both of us. Here goes. He dug into the oats bin with the measure, and poured it full into Liza's crib. Fill up, old girl, and good night to you. 
With a departing pat, he crept up the ladder to the loft above, and, scooping out a berth in the loose hay, snuggled down in it to sleep. Soon his regular breathing up there kept step with the steady munching of the horse in her stall. The two reunited friends were dreaming happy Christmas dreams. The night wore into the small hours of Christmas morning. The fury of the storm was unabated. The old cottage shook under the fierce blasts, and the chestnuts waved their hoary branches wildly, beseechingly, above it, as if they wanted to warn those within of some threatened danger. But they slept and heard them not. From the kitchen chimney, after a blast more violent than any that had gone before, a red spark issued, was whirled upward and beaten against the shingle roof of the barn, swept clean of snow. Another followed it, and another. Still they slept in the cottage. The chestnuts moaned and brandished their arms in vain. The storm fanned one of the sparks into a flame. It flickered for a moment, and then went out. So, at least, it seemed. But presently it reappeared, and with it a faint glow was reflected in the attic window over the door. Down in her stall Liza moved uneasily. Nobody responding, she plunged and reared, neighing loudly for help. The storm drowned her calls. Her master slept, unheeding. But one heard it, and in the nick of time. The door of the shed was thrown violently open, and out plunged Jim, his hair on fire and his clothes singed and smoking. He brushed the sparks off himself as if they were flakes of snow. Quick as thought he tore Liza's halter from its fastening, pulling out staple and all, threw his smoking coat over her eyes, and backed her out of the shed. He reached in, and pulling the harness off the hook, threw it as far into the snow as he could, yelling, FIRE! at the top of his voice. Then he jumped on the back of the horse, and beating her with heels and hands into a mad gallop, was off up the street before the bewildered inmates of the cottage had rubbed the sleep out of their eyes and come out to see the barn on fire and burning up. Down street and avenue fire engines raced with clanging bells, leaving tracks of glowing coals in the snowdrifts, to the cottage in the chestnut lots. They got there just in time to see the roof crash into the barn, burying, as Joe and his crying wife and children thought, Liza and their last hope in the fiery wreck. The door had blown shut, and the harness Jim threw out was snowed under. No one dreamed that the mare was not there. The flames burst through the wreck and lit up the cottage and swaying chestnuts. Joe and his family stood in the shelter of it looking sadly on. For the second time that Christmas night, tears came into the honest truckman's eyes. He wiped them away with his cap. "'Poor Liza,' he said. A hand was laid with gentle touch upon his arm. He looked up. It was his wife. Her face beamed with a great happiness. "'Joe,' she said, "'you remember what you read? Tidings of great joy?' "'Oh, Joe! Jim has come home!' She stepped aside, and there was Jim, Sister Jenny hanging on his neck, and Liza alive and neighing her pleasure. The lad looked at his father and hung his head. "'Jim saved her, father,' said Jenny, patting the grey mare. "'It was him fetched the engine.' Joe took a step toward his son and held out his hand to him. "'Jim,' he said, "'you're a better man nor your father.' From now on, you and I run the truck on shares. 
But mind this, Jim, never leave mother no more. And in the clasp of the two hands all the past was forgotten and forgiven. Father and son had found each other again. Liza, said the truckman, with sudden vehemence, turning to the old mare and putting his arm around her neck, Liza, it was your doin's. I knew it was luck when I found them things. Merry Christmas! And he kissed her smack on her hairy mouth, one, two, three times. THE Dubourks, FATHER AND SON It must be nearly a quarter of a century since I first met the Dubourks. There are plenty of old New Yorkers yet who will recall them as I saw them, plodding along Chatham Street, swarthy, silent, meanly dressed, undersized, with their great tin signs covering front and back, like ill-favoured gnomes turned sandwich-men to vent their spite against a gay world. Sunshine or rain, they went their way, Indian file, never apart, bearing their everlasting, unavailing protest. I demand, read the painted signs, the will and testament of my brother, who died in California, leaving a large property inheritance to Virgil de Bourque, which has never reached him. That was all anyone was ever able to make out. At that point the story became rambling and unintelligible denunciation, hot and wrathful, of the thieves, whoever they were, of the government, of bishops, priests, and lawyers, alternated with protestations of innocence of heaven knows what crimes. If anyone stopped them to ask what it was all about, they stared, shook their heads, then passed on. If money was offered, they took it without thanking the giver, indeed without noticing him. They were never seen apart, yet never together in the sense of being apparently anything to each other. I doubt if they ever spoke, unless they were obliged to. Grim and lonely, they travelled the streets, parading their grievance before an unheeding day. What that grievance was, and what was their story, a whole generation had tried vainly to find out. Every young reporter tried his hand at it at least once, some many times, I among them none of us ever found out anything tangible about them. Now and then we ran down a rumour in the region of Bleecker Street, then the French Quarter. I should have said that they were French and spoke but a few words of broken English when they spoke at all, only to have it come to nothing. One which I recall was to the effect that, at some time in the far past, the elder of the two had been a schoolmaster in Lorraine, and had come across the sea in quest of a fabulous fortune left by his brother, one of the gold-diggers of forty-nine, who died in his boots. That there had been some disagreement between father and son, which resulted in the latter running away with their saved-up capital, leaving the old man stranded in a strange city, among people of strange speech, without the means of asserting his claim, and that, when he realized this, he lost his reason. Thus his son, Ernest, found him returning after years penniless and repentant. From that meeting father and son came forth what they were ever since. So ran the story, but whether it was all fancy, or some or most of it, I could not tell. No one could. One by one the reporters dropped them, unable to make them out. The officers of a French benevolent society, where twice a week they received fixed rations, 
gave up importuning them to accept the shelter of the house before their persistent, almost fierce, refusal. The police did not trouble them, except when people complained that the tin signs tore their clothes. After that they walked with canvas posters, and were let alone. One morning in the winter of 1882, among the police reports of the night's happenings that were laid upon my desk, I found one saying that Virgile de Bourque, Frenchman, seventy-five years old, had died in a Worcester Street lodging-house. The story of his death, as I learned it there that day, was as tragic as that of his life. He had grown more and more feeble, until at last he was unable to leave the house. For the first time the sun went out alone. The old man sat by the stove all day, silently brooding over his wrongs. The lodgers came and went. He heeded neither their going nor their coming. Through the long night he kept his seat, gazing fixedly into the fire. In the morning, when daylight shone upon the cold grey ashes, he sat there dead. The sun slept peacefully beside him. The old schoolmaster took his last trip alone. No mourners rode behind the hearse to the Palisade Cemetery, where charitable countrymen bought him a grave. Ernest did not go to the funeral. That afternoon I met him on Broadway, plodding alone over the old route. His eyes were red and swollen. The protest hung from his shoulders. In his hand he carried, done up roughly in a pack, the signs the old man had borne. A look of such utter loneliness as I had never seen on a human face came into his when I asked him where his father was. He made a gesture of dejection and shifted his feet uneasily, as if impatient at being detained. Something distracted my attention for the moment, and when I looked again he was gone. Once in the following summer I heard from Ernest through the newspapers, just when I had begun to miss him from his old haunts. It seems that he had somehow found the papers that proved his claim, or thought he had. He had put them into the hands of the French consul the day before, said the item, appearing before him clothed and in his right mind, without the signs. But the account merely added to the mystery by hinting that the old man had unconsciously hoarded the papers all the years he sought them with such toil in the streets of New York. Here was my story at last but before I could lay hold of it, it evaded me once more in the hurry and worry of the police office. Autumn had come and nearly gone, when New York was one day startled by the report that a madman had run through 14th Street at an hour in the afternoon when it was most crowded with shoppers, and, with a pair of carpenter's compasses, had cut right and left, stabbing as many as came in his way. A scene of the wildest panic ensued. Women flung themselves down basement steps and fell fainting in doorways. Fully half a score were cut down, among them the wife of policeman Hanley, who was on duty in the block, and who arrested the maniac without knowing that his wife lay mortally wounded among his victims. She had come out to meet him with the children. It was only after he had attended to the rest and sent the prisoner away securely bound that he was told there was still a wounded woman in the next store, and found her there with her little ones. The madman was Ernest de Bourque. I found him in the police station, surrounded by a crowd of excited officials, to whose inquiries he turned a mean of dull and stolid indifference. He knew me when I called him by name, 
and looked up with a movement of quick intelligence, as one who suddenly remembers something he had forgotten and vainly tried to recall. He started for the door. When they seized him and brought him back, he fought like a demon. His shrieks of, "'Thieves! Robbers!' filled the building as they bore him struggling to a cell. He was tried by a jury and acquitted of murder. The defence was insanity. The court ordered his incarceration in a safe asylum. The police had received a severe lesson, and during the next month, while it was yet fresh in the public mind, they bestirred themselves and sent a number of harmless lunatics, who had gone about unmolested, after him. I never heard of Ernest de Bourque again, but even now, after fifteen years, I find myself sometimes asking the old question, what was the story of wrong that bore such a crop of sorrow and darkness and murder? End of section 2